0: I believe quite confidently that there's over 200 other gymnastics coaches who have not had a public reckoning uh, for what they've done. She's right. If she hadn't done this, you wouldn't know the name Larry Nassim.
1: I was told I was not unique. This happens all the time and that I needed to get over it.
0: I have had cases in the last couple of years with SafeSport where they have notified the perpetrator in advance of law enforcement getting to his house.
1: Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm Renee Williams, the executive director of the National Center for Victims of Crime and your host for this series. Sometimes the criminal justice system fails to obtain justice for victims. This can occur when prosecutions end in acquittal or if charges are not filed at all. Even following a conviction, victims of crime can be left with devastating damages. So what then is civil justice? Well, crime victims can file civil lawsuits against offenders and other responsible parties, regardless of the outcome of the criminal prosecution, or even if there was no prosecution at all. Though money awarded in civil lawsuits can never fully compensate a victim for the trauma of victimization, it can be a valuable resource to help victims of crime rebuild their lives. And it is a powerful incentive to hold institutions, landlords, businessmen, and employers accountable. In this series, we will look at civil justice thought for criminal acts and bring together diverse perspectives to tackle complex questions of accountability, justice, and healing. Parallel Justice is brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is a program of the National Center for Victims of Crime. More information about the National Center and the National Crime Victim Bar Association is available at victimsofcrime.org. Please be advised that some of the topics we discussed may be disturbing, and these are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering. We encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available via call, text, or chat at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests who are experts in these areas. These opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We acknowledge that some of these views may be controversial. However, our goal in these discussions is to raise awareness of victims' rights and the options available to them. Please enjoy the
0: podcast.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. Every two years, the world prepares for the Olympic Games, which is meant to bring together the best and most elite athletes in the world in a sign of unity. But in 2016, allegations involving serious and systemic sexual abuse of hundreds of athletes rock the Olympics. Some of the United States' most decorated and beloved Olympians, including Simone Biles, Gabby Douglas and Michaela Maroney came forward with with harrowing details regarding years of abuse that they suffered, and how U.S. Gymnastics and Michigan State University completely ignored their reports of abuse. Though these allegations seemed stunning and numerous, the world was then shocked by the watershed moment that followed. With a larger outpouring of stories about sexual assault and harassment of multiple elite athletes in all sports, ranging from other Olympians to college athletics. Today we're speaking with the attorney who many credit with first pulling the veil back on the Olympics and one of the most respected attorneys in protecting and representing athletes at all levels, John Little of Said and Little. John, thank you so much for joining us. Can you give everyone just a little bit of background on yourself?
0: Sure, I am a lawyer uh, based out of Indianapolis, Indiana. But before I was a lawyer, I, in fact, too, was an athlete. I participated in the 2008 Olympic trials in track and field. I uh, competed in track at Indiana University and at Rutgers University. And, uh, you know, so sadly, the way I got into these cases where most of my clients were my predominantly female contemporaries and peers uh, that I knew from competing. Um, And so I... um, I got into this field when my college girlfriend, who I hadn't talked to in a few years, called me up and said, "Hey, uh, you know, this is what my swim coach, a guy I knew, this is what he did." Um, and so I was a prosecutor in Arizona. I tried to get some lawyers in Indianapolis to take that case. Uh, nobody was interested, and so naively, she and I started down that road, thinking that this would be a uh, um, a quick settlement and a and a, and I don't know what we thought we were we were 25 or so when we started and eight years later um we finally resolved that case after a, at least one trip to the seventh circuit and uh, you know me financing it by doing construction work criminal defense and living in my mom's basement um but that's that's how we got started so I got started into this uh, mostly representing uh the girls and women that I knew competing
1: that's amazing, and I think it's important for our audience to hear that that's how passionate a lot of the attorneys we're interviewing are, that, that they're taking other cases in order to finance fighting for these victims of crime. Um, you gave a tip to the Indy Star many, many years back, and that was instrumental in leading to the exposure of Larry Nasser. and in my intro, I alluded to that case. For some audience members who may be unfamiliar, who is Larry Nasser? How did he evade accountability so long, and how did his case open up the floodgates for the Olympic cases?
0: Sure. So Larry Nasser was a doctor employed by Michigan State, and I would argue the United States Olympic Committee uh, for roughly 25 years, who had access through both his employment with Michigan State and his employment with the Olympic Committee to top-level athletes, Uh, Unfortunately, for not just the athletes, but for the Lansing community and and for um, everyone, uh, Larry Nassar was molesting his patients under the guise of treatment. There were written complaints about Larry Nassar back in the 90s from general students at Michigan State and other athletes at Michigan State that were just ignored, uh, as were the complaints to USA Gymnastics about him throughout his career. However, you know, one thing I think is very important to point out, in 1994, the San Francisco Chronicle wrote a book, Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, about molestation in USA Gymnastics. In 1988, um, there were written reports from eyewitnesses who saw men in their late 20s, early 30s having sex with 13-year-olds at the U.S., like literally physically at the U.S. Olympic Training Center in Marquette, Michigan that were also ignored. So ignoring sexual abuse in the Olympics predated Larry Nassar. Um, but what, what happened in 2016 was um, it was my wife, not me, that gave the articles to the Indianapolis Star, or gave the files that eventually led to the exposure of Larry Nassar to the Indianapolis Star. In 2012, I had tried to give them to the United States Attorney's Office in Indianapolis. I had tried to give them to the Marion County Prosecutor's Office, and I had tried to give them to, um, the Republican operative, who's now the governor of Indiana, Eric Holcomb. Nobody was interested in those files. Nobody wanted anything to do with it. And it was, you know, my wife's relationships with her friends that got that story out. It was not, I can't take credit for it. She gave them to her friend who was a reporter at the Star and and, um, the Star obviously got interested in it. So, you know, sadly there were 54 other individuals uh, at least in those files. And I believe quite confidently that there's over 200 other gymnastics coaches who have not had a public reckoning uh, for what they've done or have been alleged to have done.
1: This sounds so similar to the Catholic church cases. Um, Just for years, people knew what was going on but ignored it. And it took the Boston Globe, their spotlight series, to to uncover the priest abuse. And, and this sounds exactly similar, why do you think, I mean, we can understand, not understand or agree with, but understand why U.S. Gymnastics and the U.S. Olympic Committee would cover this up. Why do you think prosecutors don't take these cases? Why don't they come to light sooner?
0: Well, in the case of Indianapolis, they were being paid. We've learned, um, and we are learning first, well, it's a fact, Mark Busby was the sex crimes prosecutor at the Marion County Prosecutor's Office. He then became general counsel for USA Gymnastics. Abigail Howard was another sex crimes prosecutor in Marion County. She's now general counsel with USA Swimming. So the Olympic sport, and then we've obviously got the the uh, problems with the FBI in Indianapolis. We've got the problem in the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department. You know, they've gone so far as to arrest lawyers in my office and charge us with crimes to thwart the reporting of sex abuse in Indianapolis. And so the U.S. Olympic Committee and the NGBs made a calculated decision to hire from the Marion County Prosecutor's Office, to hire from Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department for security purposes, to as you're seeing right now, the FBI agent in Indianapolis who failed to report this is being represented by Josh Minkler, who was the U.S. attorney supervising the FBI for not reporting at the time this all went down. So in Indianapolis, I, I don't know how else to say it. It's it's a system where law enforcement runs the town. The U.S. Olympic Committee is a big uh Employer in Indianapolis. You have USA track and field, the biggest NGB in Indianapolis, gymnastics, the third biggest NGB in Indianapolis. You have you just until recently diving, you have a whole bunch of NGBs in Indianapolis with a lot of political sway. We have a lot of Olympic sport competitions. We just had the diving, Olympic trials. We've had tracks, swimming, gymnastics over the years. And so, you know, there's a lot of money, and uh you don't make a lot of money at the prosecutor's office, and so it's very tempting. Uh, to take these positions and five times the salary with your NGB.
1: So I know we're getting a little off track, but I can't help but ask this question. These are folks that are charged with protecting the public and especially protecting these victims. Have any of them faced any type of ethical reprimand or anything? No.
0: <laughs> no, of course not. Of course not. Listen, you know, the system, we will we, we'll get into safe sport in a little bit, but basically safe is just a mirror of the prosecutor's office. Look, if you're some Indianapolis public school teacher and you fail to report, which is actually, I'll, I'll tie that back in a second. Uh, we were at the hearing for an Indianapolis public school teacher who failed to report because I would always go to those hearings to try to give, these files to the barry county prosecutor's office and it was at one of those hearings where my wife said like why do you keep going to this and gave them to her friend marissa who was the newspaper reporter for the start that's how this came about so just like safe sport when you're just some public school teacher they'll prosecute you but when you're a powerful person connected to one of these entities they don't and i don't think it's a surprise to anybody in america to know that that's how the justice system works, but it works that way even at the level of child molestation. Um, and, and, you know, in Marion County in, in Indiana, there's no federal law that you have to report child abuse. However, in Indiana, you, um, any adult with a reasonable suspicion of child abuse has to report. So I know of thousands of cases in Indiana, right, that Indiana lawyers have notice of, that haven't done anything about, right? Yet one school teacher, and I'm not, well, they should prosecute teachers for not reporting. However, I think not reporting once is a lot better than not reporting hundreds of times while you're, you know, a member of the bar and everything else. So, you know, it's just, it's just the system of justice is just, it's on a cash basis. And, you know, most of the time, the people who are molested don't have the cash to pay to make it work.
1: Well, I think that's a great point too. And that's what we're trying to bring to light in a lot of these podcasts is, you know, sometimes the criminal justice system doesn't work. And, and that's where folks like you come in is how do we get some measure of justice? So you've handled a lot of these cases and really been able to take on a lot. What do you think your most challenging case was in this realm? And how did you push through that case?
0: Well, it was by, by far the most challenging one was my first case with Brooke Tafflinger. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's 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 an interesting world now. I um I used to do cases for for girls who, uh, and women who were raped at universities, and I had one case uh, where the guy was in counseling and he admitted to raping my client, and we somehow got a hold of that recording, and I couldn't get this major Pac-10 at the time university like I thought I had gold like this was the best evidence I'd ever ever had. Couldn't get them to care. You know now. The world is completely flipped, and I do feel like people are listening uh, to victims more, and so things are way, way easier now. But back in 2007, when I had no money, my entire legal experience was six months at the uh, prosecutor's office in Coconino County, Arizona, and I go up against you know the biggest law firms in the world in my first civil case ever. I mean, I just got, I just got a beating and a half for seven or eight years. Um, uh, through, through all parts of the federal courts in Indiana <laughs> and the seventh circuit, I got sanctioned, uh, 30,000 some odd bucks. Um, when I lost my appeal in the seventh circuit, I, uh, I spent every dime I had on it and then some, and, um, you know, eventually the case was dismissed, but they didn't answer for the coach. And so we defaulted the coach and tripped up this insurance policy they had. And, um, you know, we ultimately were able to prevail. Well, they, we settled before we prevailed in the on the action to uh, decide whether or not there was insurance coverage. But it boiled down to the judge in Indianapolis, who's unfortunately, since long retired, he said to USA Swimming, he said, um, well, you offer sexual abuse insurance. It says you you ensure that, you know, for victims of sexual abuse, and you make every person in the in USA Swimming buy it. And yet you're here arguing that this is, insurance coverage only for negligent not for intentional abuse and the judge she said well if you can tell me what a negligent abuse is what negligent molestation is well i'll buy this you know so
1: <laughs> well i'm dying to
0: know <laughs> <laughs> well their answer I, I don't remember what their answer was but it was something about a volunteer falling and like i mean it was so preposterous that we quickly settled um, that before there was a written decision in that deck action but you know the bottom line is um it took eight years it took thousands of dollars tens of thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours and it was a very good learning experience and I'm very glad that my clients stuck with me but also in all candor she didn't have anybody else because I tried to give that case to anybody who knew what the hell they were doing and nobody was interested so
1: (laughs) and and we hear quite a bit of those stories of olympic athletes who struggle to find counsel
0: Mm -hmm.
1: do you think it's this it's for the same reasons as we discussed it's just taking on somebody that powerful seems terrifying
0: right you mean ultimately the u.s olympic committee is represented by covington and burling right so you have eric that's eric holder and robert moeller's current law firm so you know at at the end of the day it boils down to this athletes are replaceable right new athletes women are out of sport by 25 and men are out of sport by 30 at the latest right and there's always young people coming up behind them and when you have athletes who have no economic bargaining power they don't have a union you know nbc gives the us olympic committee a billion dollars in olympics for tv just nbc alone right none of that is shared there's not a major league baseball players association sitting down and bargaining with these people right with 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 the sponsors of the olympics and so you have the u.s olympic committee the ngbs they don't pay taxes and they have billions of dollars so i mean they're just full of grifters and freeloaders and so i mean these people are untouchable i mean and that's the bottom line they're untouchable there hasn't been any accountability um you know As bad as Michigan State did, as bad as Penn State did, at least these public schools are tied to Board of Regents with some political, you know, these people have political careers in mind. They even would fire Joe Paterno eventually, right? Look, what was known about Larry Nassar, what was known about George Gibney or, you know, fill in the blank has been known for decades. Yet these people are still coaching. And that's because there's no outside person being like, you guys are crazy. No one is obje- giving them objective advice at all.
1: I think you bring up an incredibly important point that's worth reminding everybody that these athletes in the Olympics are not paid. Not paid. Even when they're amateur athletes, even when they're professional athletes. Even they're when they're Simone Biles,
0: she's not paid, right? Right. The people from the NBA, Dwayne Wade said, why do I want to go play in the Olympics? If I blow my knee out, I lose millions of dollars.
1: So so every dollar they get is based on their endorsements.
0: Right, which are severely limited by the U.S. Olympic Committee.
1: So you brought up Simone Biles. She recently and very publicly um, faced some mental health battles during the Olympics and had the twisties. But she was asked why she continues to compete. And she basically said she was really the last victim active. Mm-hmm. of of that investigation that we mentioned earlier and she really did it to ensure accountability mm-hmm. and her direct quote was if there weren't a remaining survivor in the sport they would have just brushed it to the side do you well, It sounds like you think that's true so 100%. has the Olympic committee and have others done what they need to do have they made any steps in protecting athletes no. are we in danger of forgetting this whole incident occurred
0: well, A, she, Simone is exactly right, and so I applaud her. As far as I know, of the thousands of athletes I talk about, um, I know publicly, I think she's publicly the only athlete I know of who was active and at the top of her game, or his game for that matter, that has ever said anything. Ever. Um, so, she's right. If she hadn't done this, you wouldn't know the name Larry Nasser. Second, um, the U.S. Olympic Committee doesn't give they I'm trying not to curse, they don't care. They do not care. This is not a big deal to them. They could care less. like the money's still coming. there's still kids coming up who are going to be, you know competing. They could care less about this issue. And whether things are different now, there's a little more there's a lot more traction in court. There's a lot more interest in court about this there's a lot more interest in the media which is good um and the media is really the best chance that these athletes have um but you know there's no collective bargaining mechanism for athletes which would be the ultimate leveler um and so i don't think we've made much progress over the last 15 years i've been doing this um we certainly haven't made any progress inside the olympic movement um and are we in danger of forgetting this? I mean, I guess that implies that they ever cared that we remembered it in the first place. Like, they don't care. They've known about this since I was in, you know, they this this predates my birth. <laughs> I've talked to plenty of people who are molested in less than the 70s and 60s that they don't care. I mean, it's nothing has changed. At a couple things about Olympic sports you need to understand. When you're when you're an athlete, you're so obsessed with your body and your peer group um that when you're 13 you're 18 and when you are a coach and you've only been in this mindset you're 40 or 18 and a problem in olympic sports is that the boys as athletes the girls and I've said this to to women and girls that I competed with I said you know hey like every male on our team wanted your attention okay but you were sleeping with the coach right we all knew it um why would you do that, right? And, and she said to me, she said, you know, look, I was, I was doing all the things that you had to do to run at this level and sleeping. And like, I could, I could do no more. And since this guy had an influence in picking the Olympic team, she's like, if I had to spend 15 minutes a few times a week having sex with them, that was something I could do to get on the team, right? But the boys that competed with me they saw all their female romantic interests, and I hate to use the word relationship, but having, having sex with, in, in, in the coerced sense, with their coaches. So when they become 30 and 40-year-old coaches, why are we surprised that those boys are having sex with their athletes? That's what they saw. And so I hate, I hate to say this. There's a lot of good male coaches, but we need to do two things. If, if we're not going to let athletes unionize, we need to at least... For example, how many women have coached the U.S. Olympic women's swim team?
1: I actually don't know the answer to that. I didn't do my research.
0: One, one time, right? We need to start promoting female coaches because I'm not saying that women can't rape their athletes, but it happens a whole hell of a lot less. Okay, that's one thing we can do. And then the second thing we can do is I think that men who are coaching who are over the age of 30 or 35 need a complete re-education because what they saw as boys was so bad we shouldn't be surprised that they're emulating it.
1: Do you think that so CNN just did an article they talked about the viewership on the Olympics was significantly down Mm -hmm. um significantly and yet advertisers keep pumping money in. Do you think as we see interest go down in the Olympics that that the pressure will be off? And and likewise, this year we saw steps from female volleyball teams from different Germany's gymnastic team to, for, especially for the young women, to wear different clothes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you think that will make, those two things will make any difference at all?
0: No, I I don't think the <laughs> sexual, well, do I think they make any difference like for the world? Yeah. I think those are good steps and we should try not to objectify these athletes to the extent possible. However, you've got to remember that it's like stranger danger. I always tell people why do we spend all of our time teaching our kids stranger danger? I did criminal defense. I did, uh, I worked in a prosecutor's office. I've done this and I've encountered, I can think of two stranger danger instances out of thousands, right? We've got to worry about the non-biologically related males that are in these young ladies lives every day right so the coaches are seeing these girls covered in sweat they're seeing these girls getting out of the pool they're seeing these girls get out of the shower all kinds of stuff like that so i don't think that changing the clothing is going to matter and i don't i don't think you know for for the harms that are that we're talking about today um what i think will make a difference is if athletes have the economic bargaining power to say you know what gene lopez is a rapist and I don't want to be coached by a rapist. And I certainly shouldn't be made to train with Jean Lopez, right? And you know what? I've got a million dollars. So I'm going to go train with whoever I want and pay them. That, when athletes have that kind of freedom, that will make the biggest difference.
1: So you probably just answered this, but I think it's important for everybody to hear and to discuss it. You know, one of your clients said that she went to, usa swimming sexual abuse task force so usa swimming has a task force that is meant to look at this but she wrote instead of helping me or reporting my abuse to law enforcement or even forwarding my report i was told i was not unique this happens all the time and that i needed to get over it
0: so that was in the mid 90s but here's even worse the first USA Swimming Task Force that, that was called, so in 1986, AIG said to swimming, we can't assure you anymore because there's so much raping. We can't, we can't take the risk. So in 1994, David Burkoff, who had just retired as an Olympic swimmer, he actually was the first guy that went to bat for some, that I know, that went to bat for some victims. They were his female peers. And he said, you know, I sat around and I listened to, I saw, I listened, I knew what was going on. And they had a sex, their first sex abuse task force in 1994. They had another one in 2002 where another coach said, we're going to end up like the Catholic church. Coaches are hurting people. Crickets, right? 2007, 2010. You know, the task force is just corporate America's answer to like, we're not going to do anything, but we'll write a report about it. And not do. Sh-. And these, these, the way they treated Sarah, is not unique it's and it's not different than the way it is today i have had cases in the last couple of years with safe sport where they have notified the perpetrator in advance of law enforcement getting to his house right so you you know nothing has changed like it's 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 maddening when you read that quote that was from the mid 90s and you know that situation is not unique then it's not unique now it's, it's brutally and cruelly common, and nothing has really changed.
1: You've mentioned safe sport a few times. Uh, let's table set for that. What, what is that? I think we're my, clear on your thoughts, but I'd love to hear your thoughts too. Right,
0: so, my thoughts are okay, so safe sport is an organization um, funded by the US Olympic Committee to um, investigate complaints of child abuse and abuse in general in sport in the United States. What Safe Sport really is, is the Gestapo for the USOC. See, what they do is they figure out through Safe Sports. Okay, I don't understand why people don't call the police. Don't call Safe Sport. Don't, it's never gonna be good. Don't call them. Call the police, okay? And if there's the police do something, you don't have to worry about Safe Sport, okay? I just I just did a case with an athlete who raped one of my athletes. And it took, I mean, it takes the cops a long time. But they eventually filed charges this week, right? Now, she doesn't need to go to SafeSport anymore. All right, there's been charges filed. SafeSport can't ignore it. Do not mess with SafeSport because the point of SafeSport is to gather information and report to the USOC and report to the NGBs. Hey, this is a problem in Boise or South Dakota or wherever. We think this is your exposure. What we're gonna do? What are we gonna do about it? That's the goal of SafeSport: is to mitigate the civil and criminal liability of the USOC and the NGBs. That is the whole point of safe sport.
1: But I imagine much like the Catholic Church cases, there are so many parallels here. There's so much power being held over these individual athletes that it's terrifying to call the police. You, you've you just blown your chances to, to then go to the Olympics because they'll find a magic reason to cut you.
0: Right, and that's true. And that's why we've got to divorce the selection We've got to make the selection criteria very objective. But at the end of the day, going to safe sport is like, it's, 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 every, it's worse than going to the police. Look, the worst the police can do, I suppose, is do nothing, right? They're not going to do anything. It's very unlikely the police care enough to sabotage your athletic career. Mm-hmm. Safe sport, I can't tell you how many athletes, athletes you know, Olympic medalists have called me over the years and said, you know, hey, coach so and so did X, Y, and Z to me, but if I do anything, I'll fail my drug test. Because remember, USADA, Travis Tiger, who runs USADA, got his start at Brian Cave litigating against sexual abuse athletes, right? USADA, Safe Sport, those are organizations designed to keep athletes in line, right? Mm-hmm. We, don't want, we don't want the help having an uprising. Mm-hmm. We can threaten them with drug tests and we can gather information through SafeSport. Those are two intentional designs Uh, of the u.s olympic committee uh, to keep the free labor from complaining
1: i want to talk about somebody else i think a lot of people know larry nassar but there's this other guy named george gibney Mm -hmm. you've called him the most prolific child molester in u.s olympic sports history and that includes larry nassar who
0: is he so george gibney is a gentleman from ireland His buddy there was a guy named John Furlong, who became the organizer of the Vancouver Olympics down the road. And it's been reported in Canadian media. But after Gibney left, um, he left Canada and moved back to Ireland, where he started raping children in the early 70s um, and continued to rape on a scale unimaginable. In 1992, he coached a young lady who went on to win. Uh, I think the two IM and the four IM kind of out of nowhere and became a very internationally well-known swim coach. Well, at that time, he had tried to rape another young man, Gary O'Toole in Ireland. And Gary finally was the first person to go to the police. So they charged him criminally in Ireland with counts of child molestation. He left Ireland and got a job coaching while being charged criminally, got into the United States somehow And got a job coaching with USA Swimming in Denver.
1: (laughs) What kind of tests do they give for swim
0: coaches? (laughs) I don't know. Okay. But he—he it was was bad because after that his team won a meet. The kids threw him in the pool, and they had to go in and get him because he didn't know how to swim. So this is all by the late '90s. This is very well detailed in a book called "Deep Deceptions," written by Justine McCarthy. To this day, George Gibney is still in the United States. I don't know how. Like, they'll deport you for any crime of moral turpitude. This guy's been charged with dozens, if not hundreds, of counts of moral turpitude. He finally left, he moved to California. He got out of swimming and he's working for Catholic charities and for the Knights of Columbus with blind children. He goes on mission trips to Peru. With blind children. This is the last I heard uh, where he was at. Still in the United States, still not on the United States swimming band list.
1: So he has been charged in Ireland. Did he yes. ever face a trial?
0: He did face a trial, but he, I, I don't understand the workings of the Irish judicial system, but he left before the resolution of the criminal system in Ireland.
1: And there have been no charges brought in the United States.
0: And, right. And sadly, he raped at least two or three women down in Hillsborough, Florida. Um, kids, 15-year-old kid, fifteen-year-old uh, girls, the lady I spoke to. Um, but we have not been able to get any traction at the state level. And I don't know if the statute's run or not, but he's still here. And he's one of the guys that U.S. law enforcement has said to me, I do not understand why I cannot get this guy deported. But for some reason he's still here. And the Canadians are not interested in doing anything about it either. And in fact, the reporter who wrote about it, she got sued um, by John Furlong. Um, But yeah.
1: Wow. I want to turn to you representing these clients because you're one of the folks that everybody goes to for these types of cases. And I think we heard a little bit before, just because of your tenacity, first of all, but it's hard to find attorneys who handle these cases and handle them well so when a client first comes to you i imagine they're slightly different because they have been so mentally not brainwashed but trained in the olympics how do you start to put their well-being first and and how do you start to help them to get ready to face trial in these
0: cases well you know i think so we have a couple other high-level athletes in our office, um, including a young woman. Um, basically, first of all, when you get out of sport, you, you have to learn to readjust to the world, you know? And you're involved in this trite activity. For me, running around in a circle, you know, 120 miles a week, you lose sense of what's important. You lose sense that there's a wild, larger world out there, you know? so. You need to first understand that they're going through that, right? Their identity is sport. Next, unfortunately, I think for victims of trauma, it becomes our identity. The trauma becomes our identity too, and we become obsessed with what has happened uh, to us. And so, you know, we have that level of understanding. I think what makes us unique is we understand the athletic piece of it as well, um, and and so you know, we can help them deal with that because we've dealt with leaving athletics and surviving trauma. You know, at the end of the day, I tell people, look like, okay, you're never going to get an apology. (laughs) You're never going to get what you're really looking for, right? You're never going to get closure or anything like that. Um, You're going to get money and there is a need for money, but you have to take care of yourself and you have to find something to replace the pieces of your identity that uh you know athletics is over and it's not healthy to have this trauma be your identity um and so you know i do tell them as athletes to say look it is cathartic to confront this it is cathartic to to put your abuser under oath and get to ask him whatever the heck you want for 8 hours right like so we we will fight and you will get a lot out of this and you'll get to tell your story um And, and, you know, so that is inviting for a lot of people, but at the end of the day, I think our understanding of athletics and what it took for them to get there. Whereas I think back to some of the things that I did and I think, why did I do that? Why would I put myself through that? And it's because I had this myopic view of the world that only a highly trained athlete can, an obsessed athlete can have, you know, and so back to my friend who, who said she she knew that this guy had influence on in getting with the, on the team, and she was going to sleep with him. And it's it's that warped world uh, that they're getting out of, and it's warped on so many levels. So we were able to talk to them as people who got out of it ourselves, you know?
1: And in all civil cases, we see this quite a bit, especially with victims of crime, especially with victims of sexual abuse and sexual assault, is victim blaming. And it sounds like it's could be even more prevalent in the in this high high ranking elite athlete world of just like you said well you slept with the coach because you wanted the position Mm -hmm. that becomes victim blaming Mm -hmm. so how do you combat that and how do you prepare your clients for it
0: well so i don't have to prepare my clients for it because they've already endured you know sadly a decade or more of it right so they know it's coming um you know things have gotten a lot lot better on that front You know, uh, the first case I did with Brooke, I mean, people were mad at her for getting rid of a good coach. Right. Um, And I still see a little bit of that, but it's not the same as it used to be. And it's societally. I think we're getting way better on that front. I I think, you know, one advantage of athletes is when I tell my clients, all right, this is going to be a time consuming seven year fight. Well, they've just gone through a fifteen-year fight to perfect their bodies and get on the team, and they kind of welcome it, you know. And they kind of dig into these cases like it's um, like like they're the lawyer, and 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 a lot of times it's very beneficial because they know the facts so well that they're willing to read everything and go through everything. And so I think athletes make good clients um, because they are willing to endure a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And I think once you step outside of athletics, nobody, when there's an accusation against a Catholic priest, things have changed so much that people generally are going to believe the kid. Like when I was a kid, you would never accuse a priest of something like this. Now somebody would say, oh, the kid's probably telling the truth, right? So things have really changed outside of these closed communities. Look, inside the church, inside the Olympic movement, inside Orthodox Judaism, it's still bad. But once you step out of those communities, which is what I try to get my clients to do to get out of the athletic community. And they start talking to regular people who are like, Oh, that's crazy. Like, right. And they hear that, Oh, you know, this happened to me or whatever. They realize that one in four women are in the same position as them. Um, There's a community there and that is really beneficial. Um, And so I I think honestly, things are getting way, way better for survivors uh, outside of these closed communities just multiple times better than they were 15 years ago.
1: So we're talking about the Olympics specifically today, but we've mentioned college athletics and, and other athletics. What steps can everyday people, parents, families, communities, take both to protect their loved ones that are going into this? So so they're the outside force recognizing what's going on on the inside. How can they protect their kids going in, and then how can they recognize abuse while it's happening?
0: De-emphasize sex to the point that your kids are gonna come home and talk to you about it, okay? I I often, I tell people there's two kinds of victims. One goes home and tells their parents and then the parents call the cops and that's the one you find out about, right? But in every case, I find out about 10 or 20 or more kids who um, came from conservative homes, We're never going to talk to their parents about sex ever. You know what I mean? You have sex when you conceive, when you're married, and that's it. That's the only conversation they may ever have with their parents. Those kids are perfect targets. Okay. Kids without parents to go home to are perfect targets. And when the molesters deviate from those, that's how they get caught. But um, so at the parent level, teach your kids about sex. When it comes to athletics, as a coach, If you're sitting there telling your athletes that you're responsible for their success, that's a problem. Closed practices are a problem. Stay away from organizations like United States Swimming. The biggest thing we can do as parents is insist that all of the children in sport receive training. Coaches should never drive kids home, especially alone. Coaches shouldn't be alone with kids. Coaches shouldn't be, um, you know, giving, touching kids. Coaches shouldn't be, right? So when I have a lot of cases that come to me where a kid will go home and say, I just, I just finished this case against USA Swimming. A girl went home and said, Dad, the coach is texting my client, um, you know, her name, um, about her boyfriend, about her home life. And the dad knew enough to say, that's not right. And he went to the school district. Now, the school district had completely ignored him. And she got raped for six more months, but at least he did do that, right? And eventually it came out. Um, So, if we can empower the children in sports to go home and talk to their parents about the things and train the athletes, if we train the athletes that these things are wrong, okay? When you see coaches isolating kids, go and tell your parents that your friend is being isolated. That is the number one thing we can do to protect athletes as a community. So teach your kids anatomy and insist on being in youth service organizations that train their athletes. Well,
1: I think that is all we have time for. Is there, are there any last thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners or, or go ahead?
0: Okay. So I would tell everybody again, you know, look, I participated in sports. I gave my youth the sports. I'm not anti-sport. I just think that we need to place the appropriate emphasis on sports. Nothing is worth sacrificing your body and your mental health over. Okay. Because you're not going to be 25 forever and you have a lot of life to go after sport and you're going to have to deal with the repercussions of sport the rest of your life. And so, To the athletes out there who are listening, you know, there is a life after sport and it's a lot longer than your life in sport and take care of yourselves. Um, It doesn't have to be this way.
1: John Little, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you're interested in learning more about John, his firm website is sllawfirm.com. That's sllawfirm.com, and we've also dropped the link in today's show notes. Again, thank you all for listening, and John, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Again, we know the topics discussed can be difficult and may be emotionally triggering. Support is available at victimconnect.org through call, text, and chat. We encourage you to take time today to learn about your rights and options that are available to you. Building safer communities requires every one of us to take action. Visit victimsofcrime.org to learn more. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicated to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. To support this podcast, please visit victimsofcrime.org slash donate. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, written by Krista Anderson and Mariana Wells, edited by John Williams and produced by Deidre Watford.